Well, good morning. I could certainly get used to this. I am dressed uh, for a picnic, as many of you are, and we had to make a decision at the last moment that we would have our worship service indoors. We'll have the picnic outdoors, Um, and really it's just as easy to gather together inside today as we look at the Word of God. That way, pages of mine are not blowing in the wind, and I'm clipping things down and If you were part of our church during the pandemic, you know that we met outdoors for 18 consecutive weeks. That's four and a half months. And there wasn't a single Sunday where it rained. And it was such a blessed time in the history of our church. Our church grew during that time. And so we were grateful for it. And we're grateful for the facility that the Lord has given to us. We have the flexibility to do what we're doing today. We have the flexibility to move a picnic that was intended to be outside with an outdoor service inside in a matter of minutes. And uh, so we're so grateful for the Lord's provision of this facility. Uh, Thank you for the flexibility of all involved. We were able to mobilize very quickly. We have the nursery and toddler room staff. We have children's church and so on. And so thank you for everybody who mobilized uh, to help us to make this last minute adjustment. Well, we want to concentrate our attention on the Word of God, and this is what we do. This is what we do when we gather together as we look at God's Word, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the sixth message in our 10-week summer sermon series on the church. So far, we have considered the church's master, the church's makeup, the church's mission, the church's management, the church's message, and this morning we want to examine the church's method. Method is defined as a way, a plan, or a procedure for doing something. And as a local church, God has given us the way or the the method to accomplish His purposes. And that way or that plan or that method is to make the Word of God central in all that we do. In other words, the Bible is to be our ultimate authority. The faithful preacher and writer Martin Lloyd-Jones, who passed away in 1981, once said that there could be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. And that, my friends, is why so many churches today are full of goats and not sheep, because they no longer revere the Word of God. They no longer view the Bible as authoritative. Their method, their plan, is to pick and choose which portions of scriptures they want to highlight and follow with the goal of being accepted by the world. And that should break our collective hearts. But despite that being the growing trajectory, I am so grateful that there are still so many faithful churches who stand firmly on the Word of God and who preach it and teach it without ambiguity or the fear or the approval of man. When I think about the absolute mess that our world is in, (laughs) I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, which says, there is a way which seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. In other words, just because people may think something doesn't make it right. Everything must be scrutinized through the filter of God's Word. There are churches 
that are dying on the vine because the Bible is no longer their authority. Churches that once perhaps stood firm on the gospel and God's word are no longer even recognizable. And so what in the world has happened? What has happened? Their methods changed. Their method has changed. They have moved away from the authority of the word of God and have put what they think ahead of what God thinks. And of course, we don't ever want to do that. Our church was built on the authority and sufficiency of the word of God. I think we'd all agree that relationships are important, right? God created us to be relational beings. God designed us to interact with, to learn from, and to influence others. And to have a right relationship with him. And with that being said, I think it'd be hard not to notice that the Apostle Paul was a a relational guy. His letter to the churches are chock full of names of men and women who ministered alongside of him, who supported him, who even suffered with him. And just one example of many potential examples is the Apostle Paul had a very special relationship with, with Timothy. And Timothy's often referred to as Paul's son in the faith. One of the more prominent churches that Paul founded while on his second missionary journey was in Ephesus, which was a bustling seaport located on the Aegean Sea. That was sometime around 52 AD. And then a couple of years later, you know, that Paul uh, embarked on his third missionary journey. And during that missionary journey, he stayed in Ephesus for some two to three years teaching there, while at the same time addressing false doctrine and pagan practices. Well, sometime after Paul's departure, he installs Timothy as the pastor there in the church at Ephesus. And then Paul writes two letters to Timothy about what is important for him to know as a pastor of a local church. And that's what we want to concentrate on this morning, the church's method. And the church's method can be summarized in three words. And we find those three words here in in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. But to get the context, I want to start in verse 1, and then we'll highlight these three words. Verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And those are the three words. Those are the three words that define our method as a local church. Preach the word. And what does he say? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires." They'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. The word preach is the Greek word keruso. It means to proclaim with authority And where does the authority lie? It lies in the Word. The Word. The Word preached. The Word refers to the exhaustive Word of God, the whole counsel of God. 
And so we are to preach the whole counsel of God. We're not to skip over the hard stuff. Unfortunately, I have talked to other pastors that I view as friends or guys that are seemingly like-minded, gospel-centered friends in the ministry, and they have literally told me before that when they encounter a text of Scripture that seems to be difficult, they just skip over it. And that's not at the heart of what Paul is sharing with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, preach the Word, the whole counsel of God, the exhaustive counsel of God. Preach it all. There's power in all of it. There's authority in all of it. And he goes on to tell Timothy, don't be distracted by the things of this world. Don't be distracted by those who no longer want to listen. Don't be distracted by those who would rather have their ears tickled. Just preach the word. That's the method that God prescribes to local churches. Spend your efforts and your energies on preaching and teaching God's word. Do it in season and out of season. Now he says here to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and instruct. And so these are the four aspects of preaching the word. Reprove and rebuke are the negative aspects of preaching the word. Both are corrective in nature. God has given us his word to convict us of our sin and to correct our sinful behavior, to deal with our heart condition. To exhort and to instruct is more the positive side of preaching. After the word of God convicts us and corrects us, it gives us the instruction and the training that we need to live rightly and righteously. Now, why does Paul tell Timothy to do this with great patience? Because he says the time's going to come when folks aren't going to want to listen to the truth. But he says, you can't be concerned with that, Timothy. Just preach the word. Oh, sure, there's going to be hardship. There are going to be difficult times. Just preach the word. Now, let's drill down on the significance of what Paul is telling Timothy here. Paul says that his time on this earth is short. Now, you remember that he is in his second imprisonment in Rome. So he's in prison as he writes this letter to Timothy, and he no doubt sees the handwriting on the wall. Perhaps he'd already been given an execution date. And he talks about this in verses 6 through 8 of Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. He says, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You see that? And he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's kind of sad. This is Paul's final letter. And he writes it to his dear friend Timothy a young man that he had poured his life into, a young man who looked to Paul for guidance his whole adult life, a young man that Paul entrusted to pastor the prominent church at Ephesus. And so Paul knows this is the last time that he's going to be able to communicate with Timothy. So he wants to share with him what is important. And what does he say to him? What is at the heart of what he wants to communicate to Timothy? Preach the word. Stand firm on God's word and the gospel of grace. 
shortly after writing this letter, tradition tells us that Paul was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Some believe that uh, both he and Peter were martyred at the same time. Peter crucified upside down on the cross, and Paul beheaded. And the reason that it's believed that Paul was beheaded rather than hung on a cross is because he was a Roman citizen, and they were spared the slow, cruel death of hanging on a cross. And so the local church's method should be clear. The Bible is to be at the heart of all that we believe, all that we proclaim, and all that we do. And so that's what we want to drill down on today, the Bible, God's authoritative word. And as we work our way through this today, I want to give you five foundational truths about the Bible. So as we get started here this morning, let me give you five foundational truths about the Bible. And first, and most importantly, is that it is authored by God. Now, there, there's really and truly a dual authorship as it relates to the Bible, right? So God used human authors using their own personalities, their own experiences, their own language to write down exactly what he wanted them to record. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, but uh, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, consider this about the authorship of the Bible. Again, there's a dual authorship, but, but, but listen to this. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. It has 40-plus authors who spanned 60 generations. The different authors' backgrounds were diverse. God used doctors and fishermen and kings and cupbearers to write his word to man. We find that the authors of the Bible wrote with different moods. Some were joyful, some were depressed, some were sorrowful, some were in despair. The authors wrote during different circumstances. Some wrote during times of war and, and captivity. Others wrote during times of peace and freedom and prosperity. The authors composed their writings on three different continents, on Africa, Asia, and Europe. The authors wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And of course, we know the Bible deals with many controversial subjects, and yet from beginning to end, there is complete unity an unfolding story of God's plan of salvation for mankind with Jesus at the center of this book. How can that be? How can that be? Because God is the author, the ultimate author of this book, and that is why this book is authoritative. He used human authors to record exactly what he wanted man to know. Now, just to help to give you a better flow of the Bible, you might want to jot this down if you'd like. The Old Testament is the preparation for Christ. The Gospels are the manifestation of Christ. The book of Acts is the propagation of Christ. The epistles explain Christ's teaching, and Revelation is the consummation or the return of Christ. And so the first foundational truth about the Bible is that it is authored by God. And that's why it's authoritative. 
Second, because it is authored by God, it is objective truth. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now we live in a postmodern, post-Christian world full of subjectivism. Objectivism, subjectivism. We live in a subjective world. The Bible is objective truth in that it is static. It does not change. But the world has a different definition of truth, right? The world's definition of truth stems from a personal perspective. In other words, the world says that you can have your truth and I can have my truth and they're both equally true, but God says no. My word is true. My word is objective truth. Uh, Can you imagine if we accepted this definition of truth, this subjective definition of truth, there would never ever be a delineation of truth. There would never ever be objective truth that applies to all people. And that is what we have in the Word of God. The Word of God is static. It's not fluid. It is truth that has been given to us. It is static truth. It is objective truth. And it's truth that we can stand upon. But because we live in this world that doesn't believe the Bible, they don't believe in God, this Romans 1 culture, God has given them over to the lust of their flesh, to the depravity of their mind, He has given them over, and so what do they have to draw upon? Their own wisdom. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, there is destruction. The Bible is objective truth. It does not change. It is static. It is not fluid. Third, because it's authored by God and it is objective truth, It's where we receive our direction. It's where we receive our direction. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible is full of instruction or direction for man. It's like walking around in the dark. If you have no direction, you're going to stumble over things. You're going to run into things. You're going to perhaps even trip and fall. But the Bible is a lamp to our feet. It lights up the path so we can see where we're supposed to go. It's not pitch black when the Bible is involved. It's objective truth that we can live by. We can navigate this difficult life because we have a light that lights the path in the darkness. Fourth, because the Bible is authored by God, it is objective truth and it's where we get our direction. It is also our means for spiritual growth. It's our means for spiritual growth. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. I, I am so thankful for God's word. I wouldn't know what to do in this life if it wasn't for the Bible. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, in some countries, there are arranged marriages, right? So mom and dad go on a search to look for the right partner for their son or their daughter, And they find someone that they think is special and someone that would fit the bill. And so they talk with the other set of parents and they bring these two together. They've never met each other ever in their life. That's the tradition of some countries. Now, let's translate that to the life of the Christian. If that were to happen and there were two young people that were brought together, arranged by their parents, they come together as husband and wife, guess what? They can have a successful marriage that honors God. You know why? Because God's talked a lot about marriage in his word. If both of these, this this couple, the, the, the man and the woman, if they honor and obey the word of God, they can have a very successful marriage. Fifth, then, and finally, because the Bible is authored by God, it is objective truth, and it's where we get our direction as well as the means for our spiritual growth, it is fully sufficient. It is fully sufficient. Second Peter 1.3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. To me, it's extremely clear. God has given us everything we need to know how to live our lives for him in the Bible. That's what he says. That's what Peter says. He's granted to us. He's given this as a gift to us to light our paths in the darkness. It's everything we need to know how to live our lives for God. Everything we need to know. It's not everything that God knows. It's not everything we could know but it's everything we need to know. God has given us everything we need to know as to how to live our lives for him. The Bible is fully sufficient. Fully sufficient. Not partially sufficient. It's not just inspired by God. It's not just authored by God. It's not just um, inerrant. It is authoritative and sufficient. And that's what I want to drill down on today, the sufficiency of the Word of God. So turn back a chapter, and let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Okay? 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
In other words, as we said, the Bible is fully sufficient. It's fully sufficient to equip us for every good work in this life. And here Paul gives Timothy two chief reasons as to why the Bible is fully sufficient and why he is to anchor his life and his ministry in the Word. And the first reason, if you're taking notes, is because of the provenance for wisdom. Provenance for wisdom. Look again at verse 14. You, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Provenance means source or origin. The Bible is fully sufficient because it contains the wisdom, the know-how that leads us to salvation. Salvation means to rescue from destruction. The Bible is fully sufficient because it contains the wisdom that leads us to avoid the destruction that we deserve. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So Paul tells Timothy to continue in the things that you have learned and have been convinced of since your childhood. In chapter 1, at the beginning of this letter, Paul emphasized the impact of Timothy's mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois. They raised Timothy to know the Lord and instructed him in the Scriptures. The sacred writings, Paul calls them. Sacred means holy or set apart. And so moms and dads, as Christian parents, we are to provide a biblical foundation for our families, for our children. And so we ask the question, have you taught your children to revere the Lord and to follow after the sacred writings? Do your kids have an awe and a reverence for God and his word? It is so exciting for me when the children of our church come up and show me their new Bible. Look, Pastor Dave, I got a new Bible. My mom and my dad got me a new Bible. Ah, just melts my heart. Our parents are teaching their kids to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love the authoritative Word of God. It's so cool to watch the kids get their Bible. They can't read. They get their Bible and one of our guys comes up to read Scripture and pray and it's so cool to watch them open up their Bible. You know why they're opening up their Bible? Because their mom and dad open up their Bible. And you know why they open up their Bible? Because they want to hear from God. They can't read. They have no idea what in the world are on the pages of those Bibles that they got. But their parents are saying, you know what? You will learn to read. And one day you will read the Word of God 
And their prayer is that they'll put the word of God into their lives. Is that what we're modeling in our families? A love for God and a love for his word? Notice that he says here, what he says here about the sacred writings. They contain the wisdom that leads one to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As I said, salvation means to rescue from destruction. Sola fide, one of the rallying cries, the great rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. In faith alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. This is what we are to teach our children. This is what we are to embrace as those who look and examine the powerful, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. It contains the wisdom that leads one to salvation through faith, through trust, through belief in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who came to the earth to die in the place of sinners. When Paul and Silas were in jail, Paul spent a lot of time in jail because he was an ardent follower of Christ, stood on his word. He was once asked, what must I do to be saved? Remember this, the Philippian jailer? Remember what happened there and all the, all the stuff that happened? And, 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 you know, there was an earthquake and the, the, the doors of the prisons were opened and the guy was going to kill himself because he was going to lose all the prisoners. And Paul and Silas said, hang on, just hang on. We're here. He saw this miraculous work of God and he says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved. What did he say? What did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that complicated? Is that complicated? Is that something that we must have a PhD to understand? God gave his word, his objective truth to people like us. Oh, we can have an advanced degree to make us any smarter because there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it's destruction. So we need to anchor here, not in what we think, not in what our professors say in college or university. Sure, we can learn all kinds of things about math and biology and history and all these kinds of things. But as it relates to how to know to live our lives for God, this is where we find that. It's not from the words of some liberal professor in a university. There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, there is destruction. The sacred writings. Wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. It's one thing to know something to be true. It's quite another to put that truth into practice. And so the first reason the Bible is sufficient is because it contains the wisdom that leads us to salvation. The second reason that the Bible is sufficient is because of its profitability for life and living. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so again, the Bible is inspired by God. Now, as it relates to inspiration, let me help you with this a little bit. And I've mentioned this before, but we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, which means that we believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. But not just that, that every word is equally inspired by God. Verbal plenary inspiration. And so we believe that the words of Jesus are no more inspired than the genealogies, for instance, or some obscure passage in the Old Testament. All of it is inspired by God. Literally, Greek word theopneustos, literally breathed out by God. He breathed out his word, the very word of God to man. And because it's the breathed out word of God, it has exclusive power to work in the lives of people. It is, as J. Adams has written, the Holy Spirit's tool for working in the minds and hearts of men and women to make them like Christ, being peculiar, uh, peculiarly associated with the Spirit, both in its composition and in its use. The Bible is powerful, and it's able to transform our lives. Translation, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's sufficient for our relationship with God and our relationship with others. It's sufficient for our spiritual and emotional and mental well-being. It's sufficient for our marriages and our families. It's sufficient for our goals and motivation. It's sufficient for our guidance and direction. It's sufficient for our comfort and challenge. It's sufficient for all of our people problems. It's sufficient for all of life. It's everything we need to know how to live our lives for God in this life. Now notice here that Paul drills down on the practical, profitable part of the Bible. And he gives four specific ways that the Bible is profitable. See that here, verses 16 and 17? It is profitable, first, it is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching. In other words, the, the, the Holy Spirit is the instrument that God uses to provide for us a standard of what is right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, about all the truly important matters of life. Remember when you were in school? Man, it's been a long time for me. A long time. Remember when the teacher would say, okay, students, take out your textbooks. And you would reach in your bag or you would reach under your desk and you would take your textbook and you would put it up on your desk. And then he would say, turn to page 37. And he would begin or she would begin to teach from the content of the textbook. The Bible is our textbook for life. It's profitable to teach us how to live our lives for God. Second, he says here that Scripture is profitable for reproof. 
In other words, it's the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of our sin and to show us where and how we are wrong in our thinking and wrong in our motives and our desires and our attitudes and our feelings and our values and our actions and our reactions. It's what God uses to bring us under conviction and motivate us to repent and change. I cannot tell you how many times, because I'm a routine person, somewhat repetitive, my wife tells me. I'm a routine person, so I pretty much do the same thing all the time. If I go to a restaurant, whatever restaurant it is, I know pretty much what I'm going to get. I get the same thing every time. So if I go to this restaurant, I get this. If I go to this restaurant, I get this. If I go to this restaurant, repetitive, routine. And because I'm that way, I am repetitive and routine in my reading of Scripture. And so I go to the Word of God, and I cannot tell you how many times in my lifetime as a Christian, as a 43-year-old Christian, I've had a bad attitude. But because I'm a routine, repetitive sort of person, (laughs) I still have the discipline to read the Word of God. And I cannot tell you how many times I have had an attitude or just a sour thought that went through my mind or whatever it may be. And I read the Word of God and it smacks me in the face. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Where did that come from? That's not a thought of a Christian. That's not an action of a Christian. This is what the Bible does. This is what the Bible does. It smacks us in the face. And says, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? That's not what you're to do. You're to do this. It doesn't just say, don't do that. It says, don't do that, but do this. I cannot tell you how many times I've thanked the Lord for his word. Because left to ourselves, we're probably going to mess it up. Left to ourselves, we're probably not going to think the way that God wants us to think. Because we're going to have our flesh involved and where that war is, the flesh against the spirit, where do you think the, the spirit part of this war, where do you think that comes from? The spirit is the author of God's word. And so we combat the flesh by renewing our minds in God's word It's powerful. The Bible is profitable. It's profitable for reproof. It shows us how we're wrong. Now, what do you think happens in the life of somebody who's never in the Word? They have no one telling them they're wrong. They think they're right. We started out by saying that a lot of churches have moved away from the authoritative Word of God. You know why? 
wasn't important to them anymore. The church became an organization. They have spaghetti dinners. They have a social club. They talk about the Bible some, but it's not authoritative. They're not allowing the Bible to smack them in the face. In fact, many of them may not be students of God's Word. We are to be in God's Word, immersed in it. Why? We need reproof. We need to be taught. Third, Paul says that God's Word is profitable for correction. It's profitable for correction. And and boy, oh boy, do we need correction. But if you've noticed, just because we need correction doesn't mean that folks are always open to receive correction. As we considered earlier, reproof and correction are closely related. Yes, the Bible reproves us when we're wrong, but it also is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to point us in the right direction, correcting our sinful thoughts and our sinful motives and feelings and actions and speech. And see, the Bible is useful for both. It's profitable for both, for correcting us and for showing us how we need to change. And so Scripture not only shows us why we need to change, but it actually tells us how to change and what it'll look like when we do change. And then fourth, and finally here, we find that Paul tells Timothy that Scripture is profitable for training and equipping. Again, Jay Adams, and many of you know who Jay Adams is. He's the grandfather of nuthetic or biblical counseling. He said in his book, How to Help People Change, that the Bible is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to help us develop new patterns of life. It makes that which is unnatural, living righteously, natural, It makes that which is difficult, living God's way, easier. It helps us develop strength in the areas in which we are weak. The Apostle John said true believers in Jesus Christ are to practice righteousness. We're to practice righteousness. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. So this is what the Bible does. It shows us how to live righteously, how to practice righteous living. And then we come full circle as we take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The adequacy that is spoken of there is similar and akin to sufficiency. The Bible is sufficient for all that we need to know how to live our lives for God. God's Word, the sacred writings, are so powerful that they can thoroughly equip us for every good work. The truth of God's Word is everything we need to know how to live for Him in the kind of society that Paul describes in verses 1 through 13. And so the question is appropriately asked, what else do we need? What else do we need? What are we looking for? What else are we looking for? Have we exhausted the Word of God we have it all down. We got it all memorized. We got it all in our hearts. So we, 
We're looking for something else to add to the mix? What else do we need? The Scriptures are fully sufficient to equip us to live God's way in this life. John Murray said this, There is no situation in which we as the people of God are placed, no demand that arises for which Scripture as the deposit of the manifold wisdom of God is not adequate and sufficient. So do you see now why the church's method is so important? The centrality of the Word of God, the preached Word that penetrates our hearts, that helps us to change, that leads us to the words of salvation. The church's method is essential. Essential. Paul, in his last letter to his dear friend Timothy, says, preach the word anchor there yes a lot of things are going to happen a lot of things are going to transpire you be faithful and just preach the word there's no power in any other method it is the church's method to anchor in the holy sacred authoritative, inerrant, inspired, sufficient Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for the reminder today that we all need. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You've given to us everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to know how to live our lives for You, You've given to us. May we not only be those who admire Your Word, and maybe even those who love your word but lord may we be those who do your word who anchor our hearts and our minds in the scriptures and we desire to live them out for you lord help us in our lives as christians it's getting harder it's getting more difficult we're getting more things thrown at us in this life and yet we have the objective truth of your word right in our possession May we anchor there. And thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul as he told Timothy in his last letter as he is awaiting his own execution to tell Timothy what is important in the local church, the method of preaching God's Word, your Word. And may we always anchor there at Grace Life Church. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. We thank you for your Word in our own language. May we be those who are pleasing to you in how we treat the Word, how we study it, how we immerse ourselves in it, how we teach it, how we preach it, how we stand on it. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.